0: Well, thank you to our worship team. He's done fantastic all day. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to First Corinthians chapter sixteen. First Corinthians chapter sixteen, and and I'm doing something a little different today. First time you heard me preach, I'm doing something a little different. We've been we've been in a sermon series called Revival. Our theme for the year is revival and we did a twenty one day devotion in January, February about revival. And really we're keeping that theme and my sermon series was supposed to be about five weeks and what I, but it's gone longer. What what I've done is I've looked at these markers of revival. You you can't program in a move of God into your church the spirit of God has to do it but we've looked at some some evidences of a move of God like these things are going on we see it all throughout history and in the word of God and so I've been doing that and today I'm, I'm wrapping it up and I'm doing It's this is real odd way for me to preach today is I'm not going to one passage of scripture and preaching a sermon and typically I have a uh, you know, a point and a story or a, something to go with it to help illustrate it. I'm not doing that today at all. I'll be low on illustrations because I'm I'm actually preaching an entire book today, the book of First Corinthians, which has 16 chapters. And don't freak out. Just I hope you packed a snack. That's all I'm saying. I hope you packed a snack. I won't be that long. I'm going to go through these things quickly because I, I want to preach on this subject today. We talk about rekindling the fire of Jesus. Don't be the problem. So all these things I've talked about with revival have been from a positive aspect. Here's here's what's going on in revival and today I really want to just take this one book and talk about what 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 could stop a revival in our church and in our, in, in your own life. There are definitely some things that could hinder revival. Now, I want to tell you some major misconception we have about God. Every everybody hear me when I say this. We confuse love and tolerate in, in this world when it comes to God. So for example, people say, well, God loves everybody and God does love everybody. Can I hear amen right there? Like God loves everybody. I mean, no doubt about that. Bible's very plain about that and nobody would disagree with that, but we love and tolerate are not the same thing. God loves us all, but he loves us all so much that he refuses to leave us as we are. And sometimes people say things like this, well, well, you know, that you say it to your husband or wife more than anybody, well, hey, this is just who I am. You're gonna have to like it or lump it, right? Well, that's not the Christian model. Uh, Jesus said this, that he saved us, and he is that we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's what that means: that one of these days we get to heaven, we'll be like Jesus. But while we're here. He's going to keep trying to make us look more and more like Jesus while we're here. That is, he's shaving the rough edges off of us. He's shaving the things that don't look like Jesus off of us here. Then it'd be a painful process. But what that means is that God loves us just like we are, but he loves us so much to too much to leave us like we are. And so God just doesn't accept any lifestyle we bring to the table. God expects us, especially as believers, uh, to be living a lifestyle that brings glory and honor to his name. And when we're not doing that, then we become a hindrance to revival. And so that's what I want to talk about today. We, We, in our own personal lives, we can stand in the way of a move of God in our own lives and in our church's life. And so I want to talk about it today. I want to explain uh, why you don't want to be in the way and what, what what can happen to get in the way. So I'm just going to run through this book in a hurry. It's not the way I normally preach, but bear with me today as I do it. Hey, if you've been here more than twice, you know I love talking sports, football, baseball, and all that. And uh, if baseball season is almost on us. I can't I can't hardly wait for baseball season. I'm so excited to get in 162 games this year. And I think I get to go to opening day this year. You know, last year that I was, so we had our streak going until COVID, of going to opening Opening day, which to me is a national holiday, you know, when opening day rolls around for the the Braves. And so I'm I'm very excited about it, uh, opening day this year. And I think we get to go. But I love sports because I like digging into the numbers of sports. I can be a little bit of a uh, numbers nerd when it comes to sports. One of the big numbers in baseball is 3,000. Like, how many people have gotten 3,000 hits? I don't know if you know this or not, but everybody agrees, almost no one disagrees. That the hardest thing to do in any sports is to hit a round ball with a round bat traveling about 95 miles an hour. Some of you would be like, well, I, I think I could do it. Really? I've seen your reflexes. They're not that good. And just find a batting cage somewhere and just get in there. And here's what I challenge you to do. I don't challenge you to see a 95-mile-an-hour, uh, hit a 95-mile-an-hour pitch. I challenge you to see a 95-mile-an-hour pitch, right? One blink and it's gone. But here's what we know about 3,000 hits in baseball, for example. There have been 9,914 people who have played a position that have actually had at least one major league baseball at bat in the history of baseball. 6% of those never got any kind of hit. But get this, 59%. Over half of the 9,000 had fewer than 250 hits, which is about two poor seasons worth of hits, 250, two very poor seasons. 24.5% had more than 500 hits. 18.1 more than 750. 13.1 more than 1,000. 6.3. 643 players out of 9,914 had 1,500 hits. It gets worse. 2.8 have got 2,000 hits. 1% have 2,500 hits. 1%. That's 101 players. And how many people have ever gotten 3,000 hits? 32 players in all of the history of baseball. 32 players. All Hall of Famers have gotten three thousand hits. Does anybody know their baseball? Do you know how many people have ever gotten four thousand hits? Anybody know? Uh, two people: Pete Rose and Ty Cobb. Pete Rose and Ty Cobb. You say, well, why is it? Why is it so hard to get a hit? Well, there is a lady at um, Wayne State University who's over their biomedical engineering department, and she is the lead researcher at ESPN's sports science division. Her name is Dr. Cynthia Burr. And Dr. Cynthia Burr tells us why it's so hard to hit a baseball. For example, do you know it takes... Only .4 seconds, .4 seconds for the baseball to leave the pitcher's hand to cross home plate when the pitcher's throwing at about 90 miles an hour. And we got guys hitting 103 nowadays. That means that in .1 second, the ball has traveled 12 feet as the batter locates the ball out from the pitcher's hand, 0.1 second. That means it takes another 0.07th of a second for the batter to recognize the speed, movement, and trajectory. By now, the ball has traveled another 10 feet and it will require 0.017th of a second for the brain and body to harmoniously work together when swinging. That leaves 0.09th of a second for the batter to decide to swing or not. The slightest hesitation could be the difference between a home run and a swinging strike. And here's how she summed it up. Seven milliseconds too early or seven milliseconds too late. And it's a foul ball even if you can make contact seven milliseconds makes all the difference in the world, hitting a baseball. And I showed you that because I wanted to show you, us all our futility in hitting a baseball and how hard it actually is. But if you think that's hard, the hardest thing in sports, can I tell you from a preacher's standpoint that revival is so much harder because we have this this moment in time that is not measured in milliseconds but in opportunities that if we're not careful that revival is it's not a science it's an art of a move of a spirit of God in our hearts and in our churches of life and just like you can be off by a fraction in hitting a baseball and mess it up church we can be off by a fraction when it comes to revival the truth is, you're hearing me today and you're thinking, well, why do we even want to be in revival? And I want to tell you, as a preacher, I want us to be in a constant state of revival. I don't want us baptizing 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 one time a month or once every three weeks. I want us doing it every single week. Why? Because I want to tell you that if you're listening to me today, do you know that your life would be better if our church was in revival? That that your home would be better? That your marriage would be better? That your family? You say, well, how is that? Because revival of ushers us all closer to the presence of God hear me everything gets better in the presence of God and when we're in this constant state of revival the presence of God is closer to us than ever and that makes your life better your family better everything about you better the presence of God improves everything but it doesn't take much to mess up revival the truth is you could be messing it up today and let me be very clear you do not want to be the one that's standing between God and revival. God will deal with that. You don't want to be the one person, the one problem that's standing between God and revival. God will deal with that. When we opened the book of 1 Corinthians, that's exactly what God was doing. He was dealing with it. Church Corinth was a wealthy town. It carried with it all the trappings of a godless affluence of a wealthy town. It was known as the Corinthian lifestyle. People lived... At a rate of immorality that would that would make uh, our culture blush today. It was a it was a, a city that was in a mess, and God had been saving people out of the Corinthian lifestyle, and they formed a church, and they were trying to be more like Jesus, but they were having a really hard time becoming that new creation in Christ that Paul talks about Second Corinthians chapter five. And this entire book of First Corinthians is a scathing rebuke of their lifestyle that they had brought their godless lifestyle into the church and they were still doing it in the church and they were standing between God and a move of his presence inside the church and so it so grieved God it so grieved the apostle Paul who wrote the book that Paul ended first Corinthians in kind of a weird way when Paul normally wrote to a person or a church the last few verses are always about hey we love you we miss you we're encouraging you you're encouraging us and Paul writes first Corinthians in a really kind of strange way and the next to last verse is not typical Paul here Here's what it says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord come. That's not how Paul writes. That's not typical Paul. Paul said, if anyone does not love the Lord... Paul said, I've tried to straighten you out. I've tried to get you where you need to be. I've tried to get you to be obedient to the Lord. But if you're going to stand in the way of a move of God, Paul said, let your life be cursed. You say, preacher, what does that mean? I don't know. But I don't want to find out either. Like, I know if you offer me, do you want God to bless you or curse you? 10 times out of 10 times, I'm going with blessing. Whatever Paul meant, it wasn't good. And he said it because they were standing between God and a church that needed a move of God. So I don't want to be that person. I know you don't either. So let me give you seven things that Paul points out through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to put the biggest rocks out of this book. The whole book is a scathing rebuke. The whole book is, man, you read it. Don't get any good doctrine out of Corinthians. It's just all just a mess he's dealing with. And so let me give you seven things, the big rocks that he's dealing with that can stand between God uh, and our church, and you, and revival. Number one, what'll, what'll hurt us? Number one, I'll call it an abominable attitude, chapter one. Chapter one, Paul says, there is a rivalry among you. As a matter of fact, he says, uh, divisions had broken out, rivalries, jealousies, cliques had broken out in the church. And here's here's what it was. It seems funny to us, but it was a big deal in their day. They had broken up in the church based on who baptized you. So there was a group that said, Paul baptized me and they thought they were more spiritual and another group said Apollos baptized me and another group said Peter and then you had the Jesus Jukers right who said well Jesus baptized me which he didn't do but somehow they claimed it and so you just had these cliques that formed in the church and each group thought they were more spiritual than the other group and they developed a bad attitude towards others in the church based on what group they were part of it was just a rivalry that was killing any chance of a m- move of God and it's not just they had separate into groups they'd separate into groups with bad attitudes and they'd form these cliques in the church and they were basing your worth on what group you ran with now here's what i want to tell you church no church can experience revival when there are rivalries and cliques going on in church now you're you're new to our church and listen i know some of you are thinking who's he talking to out there today i'm not talking listen to this hear me i'm not talking to anybody i'm talking to everybody. I don't. I call this as a pastor. As far as I know, if you're looking for a church today, hear me. This is the best church you'll find on the planet. We got no issues. We, we have no problems. Uh, th- it's an awesome place to be. I call these sermons preventative medicine. Right? We're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna preach these from time to time so we don't have any issues. Because no rev- no church can experience revival when there are rivalries and cliques in the church. You say, what is a clique? A clique is a group of people that says no to any person outside your group a a, a clique is somebody that leaves out people who desperately need christ or community a clique is a group that creates negative feelings towards others a clique is a group that says no to anybody who doesn't look like you or they don't come from around one of the first churches I pastored I haven't pastored me but one of the first churches I pastored uh man there were communities being built and people started coming to our church we were knocking on doors inviting them to church we were seeing people say baptized join our church and had one of the older members in church say hey pastor I'd like to talk to you and that was never a good thing like that was never like oh yay it was always bad he he we we, we talked and he here's what he said to me I, I quote it he said uh Hey preacher, all these new people are coming from our church to our church. I just want you to know they're not from a, they're not our kind of people. And I said, I I don't know what that means. I was young. He said they're they're not our kind of people. And I said, hey guy, not the sharpest pencil in the block. I don't have any idea. You have to be very plain. I don't know what not, are, they, are they not humans because that's the only kind of people I know are humans. That's that's. Uh. He's like, no, they're not. From around here. And I, I, I don't know. What, what is from around here? I, like, and so I drilled down and he's like, well, they're not from our, our county. Their world was as big as their county was. I'm like, is that a joke? Like, I can't believe somebody's actually saying this out loud. Is that a joke? Like, No, no. He, he's like, we just, I want you to know there's us and those that have been here and then there's them. And I can I tell you, that attitude will destroy a church. Whatever group you may be a part of, expand your world, expand your group. Don't look down on somebody because they're new, different, younger, or older. Here's the position we take here at p Here's my official position at p We are everybody's cheerleader. That's my position. That if you're trying to live for Jesus, trying to do what's right, trying to push back the darkness, trying to serve the Lord, trying to advance the kingdom, we are going to be your cheerleader. And we're not going to form groups or rivalries. Why? Because it will stop a move of God dead in its tracks. Number two, they had the problem of sanctioned sin, chapter five. It's a pretty severe thing. There was sin in the church. Instead of rebuking the sin, they were allowing it openly. Paul called it sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. But in that day, pornea, original meaning meant to visit a house of prostitution. But it had morphed and it meant... Any sexual, uh, extramarital sexual sins, it could have been an extramarital affair, it included uh, homosexuality, but anything outside of God-designed relationship of one man for one woman uh, for one lifetime, anything outside of that was called Pornea. And of course, you, you, it makes a little sense when we get our word pornography from it, but it was the actual act of it, not viewing it, but the act of it back then. And so they had a man in the church who was engaged in pornea. It was a, it was a relationship outside of his marriage and outside of somebody else's marriage. And the whole church knew about it, which is weird. The whole church knew what was going on. And instead of, instead of uh, being grieved over it, instead of doing something about it, they were allowing it and even sanctioning it. It happened. And Paul, wrote to him and told him this in chapter 5 the problem with you endorsing sin is that you open the door to other sin in the church here's what here's what Paul says it's a good word to hear right here by the way Paul actually says in chapter 5, you go home and read it, and I'm paraphrasing, he said it's okay to associate with lost people, people far from God, who are immoral for the purpose of winning them to Christ. Paul literally says you couldn't live in the world if you didn't do that. Paul said it's okay to so- associate with people who are immoral in order to win them to Christ. We are supposed to engage a lost world with the gospel in order to bring them to Christ. However, Paul said it's not okay to associate with saved people who are living an immoral life because they know better and Paul said this remove them from the church and again here's one of these phrases I don't know what it means he said hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh you want to read a bunch of confusing things? Read read a bunch of commentaries on what that means. Hand, this was a church member, by the way. This was a saved person, not an unsaved person. Paul said, for a saved person who's living an immoral lifestyle who that's open, that refuses to admit it and get their hearts right with God, Paul said, then give up on them, remove them from the church, and hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I have no idea what hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh means. I just know this. If I said, hey, hey, uh, Meet me at 2 o'clock. We're going to hand you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh this afternoon. You wouldn't come. And I'm not coming either, by the way. I don't know what that means. I'm not showing up either. As though it's not what's bad. This though it's what's really bad. I mean, I'll dig in. If we ever have to do that, I'll dig in and figure out what it means. Just please nobody make me ever have to hand you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. All right? Please get your heart right before I have to figure out what that means. I don't know what it means, but I'm going to tell you this. We shouldn't be shocked When the world acts like the world, but we should be grieved when the church acts like the world. Paul was telling us, he talks about leaven. You have to read it. Unchecked sin will kill revival and a move of God in church. It doesn't have to be sexual sin. You may be here today with sin in your life and you're thinking, well, hey, preacher, nobody knows about my sin. It's all good. I got it all covered up. Listen, God knows and God does not take it lightly. And your sin could be what's standing between a move of God and our church. What do I do then, preacher? You've got to deal with that sin, confess that sin, forsake that sin. Proverbs 28. 28, Twenty-eight, thirteen says whosoever confesses and forsakes his sin shall then find mercy and sanctioned sin will kill revival number three brawling brothers he says in chapter six it's interesting chapter six paul says uh, that uh there were two brothers in the church not not physical brothers but spiritual brothers in christ who were arguing so severely it wound up in court dude that's an argument right there when it makes it all the way to court and Paul said it should never have happened. You should have never taken it. Two brothers in Christ should have never taken something to court. They should have came together with spiritual leaders in the church and let the spiritual leaders serve as mediators of that dispute. Because listen, fights and brawls in the church will kill any hope of revival. God has never looked down at a church that was in the middle of a knockdown down drag out fight and said, I think I'm going to send revival down there. Y'all ever been... I want to ask you to raise your hand cuz you got a little PTSD. Those of us who grew up in really small Baptist churches, you, you remember conference night in a really small Baptist church. Like if you're a preacher, it was it was ulcer night. Like you were ter- you, didn't, you didn't know what could happen. I mean, I travel the nation and speak churches. You you should see that stuff still goes on. None of it never happens here. I think we have One conference a year, and we just don't have any issues. We're very open and transparent with with what we do here uh, with stuff. And look, but you go to some churches, man, they still breaking out in songbook, throwing, profanity-laced church services on a Wednesday night called conference. God's never looked down at a profanity-laced, and by the way, if you cuss, I'm not on your side. Like, I literally can't be on your side if you cuss in church, no matter how good you think your argument is. God's never looked down at that and said, you know what, that guy Man, he's such a good, has such a good arm with that song book. I'm going to send revival down to that church. Gabriel, did you see a wizard all across Sanctuary hit that lady in the head over there? Man, let's send revival. Let's send revival down there. Never happened. Never happened. Never happened. God will not do it. And so I'm telling you, church, don't be in, a, don't be in fights with people in the church. Let's expand it. Don't be in fights with people outside the church. Don't be in fights with people in your family can we just speak the truth? Don't be in fights on social media. Can we say that? Just stop it. It's not the place for it. Work it out for the glory of God because the kingdom is too important to let a disagreement between two people hurt a move of God. Number four, he said a, a messy marriage. And I know All you church people are thinking, well, wait a minute. What does marriage, what does my marriage and revival have to do? Listen, Paul is trying to straighten out the church. And when he does, he gets to chapter seven and he's this whole thing on marriage that he has to go through. Why does he have to stop and talk about marriage hurting a move of God? Here's why. If your marriage is having trouble, you won't have the energy to focus on God. You just won't. He says it later on in chapter seven, that a married man has to worry about caring for his wife and pleasing her. Right, If you're married, you, you know that. You can't ignore your wife and and, and have a good marriage. And family trouble can cripple your walk with God and hinder revival. So here's what Paul is saying. I'm going to sum it all up. Do whatever it takes to get your marriage right. Do whatever it takes. You're not a brother and sister living together. You're a husband and wife that should be joined together as one. Do whatever it takes. And you say, preacher, she thinks we need counseling. Then you do. Well, preacher, he thinks we need counseling. You do. Go get counseling. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Listen, by the time you come to me, it's normally too late. You don't want a marriage that survives. You want a marriage that thrives. And a messy marriage can actually hinder the work of God. Number five is Selfish Saints, chapter 10. Paul was dealing with the issue of Christian liberty. I really it, it's too much to get into, but there were there was meat offered to idols. Okay? So so people would offer meat as a sacrifice to idols, and then they'd take the meat and go sell it in what their their butcher would have been, and the day would sell the meat. And so there were new Christians who thought you shouldn't eat the meat offered to idols, and there were older Christians who had been doing it, and, and Paul said, it's not really wrong, but Paul said, that's not really the question, is it right or wrong? Paul said, is it more important to get your way, or is it more important to help a brother in Christ? And here's what he said in chapter 10, verse 24. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Can I tell you, that ought to be the verse you live by. It'll revolutionize your marriage, it'll re- revolutionize your home, it'll revolutionize your life. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. it revolutionize every church in America. Can I tell you what, a kill revival is a church full of people demanding their own way. What they like, what they prefer, how they want things to be done. Listen, if the church is going to have revival, hear this statement, the message and the mission have to be more important than our preferences are. Man, that was such a good place to say, "Amen." I want to say it again, and so you, you were stunned by the statement. I know. Let me try it again. All right, if the church is going to have revival, the message and the message have to message and the mission have to be more important than your preferences. Say it, Amen. amen. The church can't be full of selfish saints. It'll kill revival. You know what that means? That means sometimes in church, we'll do some things in a way that you don't like. Can we be truthful? We do things in a way that I don't like, but it's not about me. It's about the mission and the message of God to a lost and dying world. Our mission. If you're new to our church, our mission, uh, Peavine City. You, you'll hear us talk about Peavine City all the time. It's totally made up. Like there's no such place, but it's a 20 mile radius from where I stand right now. And we just drew a circle on the map and we said that's our city because we're not worried about filling a building. We're trying to reach a city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we made up a city because we didn't really have you know one big enough for us here. And so Peavine City. There are 497,000 people inside of Peavine City, and we feel like it's our mission to get the gospel to all 497,000 people. That is a mission that's too big for us we have a god though who has a message that can do it and we feel like we need to move of god to have it happen and we're not gonna let how everybody wants to do everything do you know how impossible it is to do things the way you want to do it do you know how impossible that is you do know that when there are 20 baptists in a room there are 21 opinions right you know you know that so we don't make decisions based on what we like. We make decisions on what's going to help us to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number six, what will stop revival is a bitter body, meaning the body of Christ. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on spiritual gifts. We all, if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. And Paul likened a church, our church, to a body. Some people are the feet, some are the hands, some are the eyes, some are the ears, and just kept going. And in Corinth, there were people who were jealous and bitter over the giftedness God had given to other people. Now, outside the church, we would call it stage envy. doesn't mean you're on the stage, but that's where the term came from. Now, we would never say that term, but we cloak it in better terms or we talk about how we would do it differently or how we would do it better. And listen, bitterness and jealousy will kill revival. Here's what we do. We celebrate every gift God has given every believer, whether it's on a stage or the microphone, whether it's, whether it's singing or whether it's in the hallway making someone feel special when they walk in for the very first time, whether it's helping with children or youth or teaching or whatever it may be. We're all important. For the kingdom of God. What I do is no more important than what you do. This is the way God gifted me. When they sing, they're no more important. It's just like not everybody's been gifted to sing. American Idol has taught us that, right? Do <laughs> you know studies show this? That a first-time guest decides within seven minutes of pulling on the property whether they're ever coming back to the church or not. Hang with me. Seven minutes of pulling on the property. Do you know what's not happened in seven minutes? We've not sung a song, and I've not preached a sermon, and they've decided whether or not they're coming back ever. Now, if they made it to the sermon, they'd come back, right? Like, we know, we know that. And they've decided before I preach. You know why? They've decided by how they were treated when they walked in the door. So do you know who that makes more important? It makes more important all these people standing at doors that say you are essential. It makes them... Some of the most important people we have in this church we don't get envious or jealous over somebody else's gifts by the way this is often the sin of the committed this is the sin of those who are here every week who tithe who serve who give don't let it kill revival number seven i'm finished what'll kill revival is lazy laborers verse number 58 first corinthians 15 here you look in first uh, Corinthians 15 if you've been in church any length of time you know it's a it's a it's a chapter about the gospel and the resurrection I'm preaching out there on Easter I'm really excited about my Easter sermon I'm preaching out here on Easter and uh but the funny thing is we miss the point of verse uh first Corinthians 15 because we call it the resurrection chapter because 95 percent of it is dealing with the resurrection but all of that is written for verse 58 verse 58 is actually the focal point of of the passage verse 58 says this be steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the lord for as much as you know you labor not in vain be steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the lord for as much as you know you labor not in vain paul wrote uh, wrote verses 1 through 57 so he could get to verse 58 which verse 58 says this because there is a resurrection find a place to serve god and do it with excellence do it do it with all your heart and don't ever stop that's verse 58 but it's he used the resurrection to set it up always be excelling in the work of the lord Deal revival comes when people are willing to prioritize what they do for a holy god you need to find a place to serve you need to tackle it with all your strength Never waver, never back down. And don't stand in the way of God sending revival. Close your Bibles, I'm finished. And let's go ahead and stand up together. 2020 took its toll on, on us um, in the U.S., like in a bad way. 2020, 2020, um, We lost years off our life. Now, you you probably can't read this graph from where you are. All you really need to know is that drop at the end is your life expectancy. And we saw it statistically plummet in one year's time. Lost over a year off our lives in one year's time. And of course, ladies, you're going to live to be Nearly 81. Men barely made it to 75. So, guys, you might check what she's putting in your food at night. I don't know, just to be. We're five years. We're going five years sooner than they are. Why 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 does that matter? Because 2020 literally took years off our lives. And the Bible says this. It's appointed that it a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. 2020 accelerated the time when we're going to go see the Lord. And the first thing that happens after you die is you stand before God and give an account for your entire life. And so here's what I'm saying time is too short to play around. time is too short for you to be the one standing in the way between a move of God and the church in your own heart and life. So would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes all around the room? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. My first question to you this morning is, are you 100% sure that when you die one day, and we're all going to die, are you 100% sure that you'll go to heaven when you die? You say, oh, preacher, I'm not "A preacher, I'm not 100. Can anybody be 100? It, of course. Jesus did not come and die on the cross and rise again so we could hope we're going to heaven one day. He came to die on the cross and rise again so we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is in our life and heaven is our home. Do you know that for sure? You can today. It's as simple as ABC. Listen to this. ABC. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If if you're not 100% sure, hear me now. A, B, C. A, the Bible says you have to admit that you're a sinner and that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a statement in the Bible. For all have sinned. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. We've all sinned. But what you have to admit is you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. You know, we think there's these divine scales in heaven where God's putting our good deeds on one side and our bad. That's not true. That's absolutely false. The Bible teaches against that over and over and says this, Romans 3.10 says this, there's none that does good. God said, hey, if you're wanting to get to the end of your life and weigh your good and your bad, let me just tell you this, you have done no good compared to what my righteousness would require. So you have to get to the point where you admit you're a sinner, you cannot save yourself, your good deeds aren't gonna work. You can't give enough, do enough, be enough to earn your way to heaven. Well, that puts us all in bad shape, but there is a B, and the B is this. You've gotta believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. We call that the gospel. And believe doesn't mean believe it happened. It means you put your faith in that for your eternity. That I trust Jesus. I believe it so much That I'm willing to step out on that net of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And then there's the C. That is you have to call on him. Confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. And The Bible says whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the gospel. A-B-C. The good news is all the work has been done. The good news is all you have to do is receive it. The good news is you can do that right now heads are bowed eyes are closed if you'd like to know that christ is in your life and heaven is your home pray a prayer like this not the prayer that saves you but it's the intent of your hearts to give your life to jesus say dear lord jesus i know that i'm a sinner and i can't earn my way to heaven but i believe that christ died on the cross for my sin and rose again on the third day and by faith just now i put all of my hope and trust and what he did for me and i ask christ to come into my life and save me forgive me of my sin and give me a home in heaven and i trust jesus and jesus alone heads are bowed eyes are closed this morning if you prayed that prayer with me you are born again and and the bible requires something of you at this point It, it requires you to acknowledge that there are no secret disciples and So I'm going to give you a couple of ways to acknowledge that. One is I'll be standing down front. You can come tell me you made that decision. Daniel, our executive pastor, is over to your right. You can come tell him that. You can take the connection card that you filled out, and you can just check on there. You prayed to receive Christ, and we're going to send you some materials in the mail that tell you what to do next so you can be 100% sure.